and welcome to Finding Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings Middle Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we uh, typically discuss the works of John Ronald Rayl Tolkien, who wrote his Middle Earth stories from uh, 1937 when he was 45 up until his death in 1973. But we are doing a little detour here because I cannot stop thinking about Terry Pratchett when Zoe has been telling me about the different fantasy races for the past months. Um, and I thought we would finally get a chance for me to shine and prove that I do read books. And <laughs> uh, you read so many books, so many more books than I do. I read so many books, but like so they're not, none of them have been Tolkien. So um, let the listeners know that Hannah is the one who ref- like refers books to me, read, <laughs> not the other way around. <laughs> Uh, but I wanted to talk about one of the most formative writers of my young adulthood, which is Sir Terry Pratchett. And Zoe knows him as well. You've read some of his books. Yeah, like six or seven of them. He has yeah. a lot. Uh, 41 Discworld novels. I am so behind. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> alas, there aren't going to be any more because he is dead, but there's always a chance to catch up. And I went looking on my Terry Pratchett shelf for this and have a bunch of books lined up to read quotes from. And I do have 33 Terry Pratchett books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're stacked too deep on that shelf. Um, I have to dig. <laughs> Love you so much, Hannah. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah. Um, and I also have he wrote a co-wrote a book with Neil Gaiman, Good Omens. So 33 yes. books plus that one. Um, he published a great deal of novels, not just in Discworld, but we will be focusing on his Discworld books, of which there are 41. Um, I wanted to start this with a little background on Terry Pratchett himself, just because in looking into him and how he connected with Tolkien in the same way that C.S. Lewis connected with Tolkien's life, I just got really derailed with everything that Terry Pratchett went through. So Sir Terence David John Pratchett was an English humorist, satirist, and author of fantasy novels, especially comical works. He was born in 1948 in Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire, England, and he was an only child. His first short story, Business Rivals, was published in 1962 in the High Wycombe Technical School magazine. And then he published The Haiti Business in the school magazine when he was 13, and it was published commercially when he was 15. So he got his publishing career kind of started early. His initial career choice was journalism, and he left school at 17 in 1965 to start an apprenticeship in journalism. And he wrote over 80 stories for the children's circle section under the name Uncle Jim, which is very funny to imagine like an 18-year-old being like, my name's Uncle Jim. While he was uh, on a day release from his apprenticeship, he finished his A-level in English and took the National Council for the Training of Journalists Proficiency course, where he received the highest marks in his group. he married Lynn Purvis at the Congregational Church Gerard's Cross on the 5th of October, 1968. And he also had his writing breakthrough in 1968 when he interviewed Peter Bander Van Duren, co-director of a small publishing company called Colin Smith Limited. During the meeting, Pratchett mentioned that he had written a manuscript, which was called The Carpet People. Colin Smith Limited published The Carpet People in 1971 with illustrations by Sir Terry Pratchett. 
The book received strong but very few reviews and was followed by the science fiction novels The Dark Side of the Sun in 1976 and Strata in 1981. Uh, the Pratchett's daughter, Rihanna Pratchett, who is also a writer, uh, was born in Roebarrow, Somerset in 1976. And after various positions in journalism in 1980, Pratchett became the press officer for the Central Electricity Generating Board in an area that covered four nuclear power stations. He later joked that he demonstrated impeccable timing by making this career change so soon after the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in Pennsylvania. And, and he said, I would write a book about my experiences if I thought anyone would believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the first Discworld novel, which is The Color of Magic, was published by Colin Smith Limited in 1983. Pratchett's popularity increased when the BBC's Women's Hour broadcast The Color of Magic as a serial in six parts, and then later they also released Equal Rights. Uh, I assume this is some sort of audio, like, read-aloud sequence that they had. Probably kind of like the, uh, the, the tapes, the BBC tapes of Lord of the Rings that oh. Kate gave me. It might be something like that, because that was a 13-part BBC radio series. Did they just read it out loud? No, they took like a, they made a script for it. So they basically took all of the, all of the dialogue was from Tolkien, and then they kind of truncated and wrote a script for it to put it together as a narration. But it was really well done. That's awesome. Yeah, I see that happening with a lot of stories. Actually, I've listened to quite a few little radio broadcasts of like Neil Gaiman short stories and stuff like that. They're really cool. Yeah. But yeah, so they had those, and that made his works pretty popular. He gave up working for the Central Electricity Generating Board to make his living through writing in 1987 after finishing the fourth Discworld novel, Mort. And his sales increased, and many of his books were on the bestseller list. Uh, he was the UK's best-selling author of the 1990s and was the top-selling and highest-earning UK author in 1996. Uh, in 1993, the Pratchett family moved to Broadchalk, a village west of Salisbury, Wiltshire, and he listed his, re his recreations as writing, walking, computers, and life. Solid. He was really into computers, actually. Uh, he did some gaming, and he was using computers to write his stories pretty much from the first time computers were available. Um, he was like really on top of it. He wrote some code for things. Sometimes he wrote a whole MMORPG um, for Discworlds. So you could play it like an RPG game. But it was like, a, yeah, it was really interesting. And you see this in some of his works. Uh, he has a lot of commentary about coding and like computers and getting computers to work there's a computer that shows up in later Discworld books that you have to give it like a small fluffy toy for it to work and you have to like coax it into telling you stuff it's named hex and uh, it was all just like very silly and it's run by bees like it's he had a lot of fun with that shit <laughs> As we've talked about, Tolkien and Lewis were very much in the like Christian Christianity faiths, and Pratchett was a humanist. Uh, he was pretty atheist, but was interested in gods and religion, and it shows up in his works. Um, but he himself was more focused on like humanity and uh, like caring about people and what is the best life for people that you can build as a human being, which also comes through in his works. 
He was a patron of the Friends of High Wycombe Library uh, and loved libraries his entire life. He grew up reading and um, he read Tolkien and actually wrote Tolkien a letter and Tolkien wrote back to him. And he was like, I have to admit, J.R. Tolkien is my favorite author because he took the time out of his day to write to a fan. And it was a very sweet letter. Do we have copies of this letter? Not to my knowledge. I couldn't find oh. one online, but yeah. In case anyone's wondering and listening to this, my hands are clasped to my face and I'm making really crazy faces. Yeah, there's a lot of funny face happening. Oh, I, would <laughs> I wish we had it too. I know. I want to know what he said. And I want to know what J.R. Tolkien said. I know. Ugh. Like, did he ask questions about, like, what did, he, what did Pratchett ask and what did Tolkien say? I mean, Pratchett was writing from a very young age and publishing and stuff. So it's got to be, he was inspired by this guy and he's like, look at all this stuff that I'm trying to do. I don't know. I, I can imagine. I can speculate about what Tolkien and Pratchett wrote about, but who knows? We should totally pen these letters ourselves. Yeah, we'll just make a little fan fiction. <laughs> yes. 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 Pratchett was very interested in science also. Um, he wanted to be an astronomer when he was younger, and he had an observatory built in his garden as an adult. An asteroid, uh, 127005 Pratchett, is named after him. He also installed solar energy at his house because he was concerned about the future of civilization, so cared, cared about nature. He also was interested in natural history, and he referred to many times in his books. Uh, he owned a greenhouse full of carnivorous plants, um, which he said were not as interesting as people think, <laughs> but he wrote about them in his author bios all the time. In 1995, a fossil sea turtle from the Eocene Epoch of New Zealand was named Cephophorus Terry Pratchett in honor of him by the paleontologist <laughs> Richard Kohler, which is really cute. He has a lot of stuff just named after him because he cared about it. I really want Pratchetty to be a word. You're being very Pratchetty today. <laughs> It'd be kind of a compliment, but also kind of pedantic too. I right. I'll, I'll get Precisely. into his style in a minute. But I, interestingly, I saw his background as a journalist and press officer led him to be concerned by 1995 about the spread of fake news on the internet which has been kind of a buzzword these days for us. Uh, in an interview with Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, Terry Pratchett said, let's say I call myself the Institute for something or other, and I decide to promote a spurious treatise saying the Jews were entirely responsible for the Second World War and the Holocaust didn't happen. And it goes out there on the internet and is available on the same terms as any piece of historical research which has undergone peer review and so on. There's a kind of parody of a steam of information on the net. It's all there. No, there's no way of finding out whether this stuff has any bottom to it or whether someone has just made it up. Gates was optimistic and disagreed with Pratchett, saying that authorities on the net would index and check facts and reputations in a much more sophisticated way than in print. But it was Pratchett who had accurately predicted how the internet would propagate and legitimize fake news. Good job, Pratchett. Thanks for joining us. He has a pretty good grasp of human nature. <laughs> yeah. Um, in August 2007, Pratchett was misdiagnosed as having had a minor stroke a few years before, which doctors be believed had damaged the right side of his brain. In December of 2007, though, he announced that he had been newly diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease, which had been responsible for the quote unquote stroke. He had a rare form of posterior cortical atrophy, a disease in which areas at the back of the brain begin to shrink and shrivel. So he described this diagnosis as an embuggerance, which is a great word. Uh, and he 
kept pretty positive about it. He was pretty optimistic the whole time and worked with doctors for the rest of his life to try and slow the progression of this disease. He stated that he had time for at least a few more books yet, and indeed he did. Basically, from when he started, like switched full time to publishing in the 1980s, he was publishing two books a year. Wow. His output was huge. He was collaborating with a lot of people as well. There's quite a few books where he is listed with another person, including sci-fi books. He kept up writing sci-fi because he really liked it. Ooh, um, like what? Do you know which ones? There was a series he wrote with Stephen Baxter that's like The Long Earth is the first book in that. And it's cool. about very cheap interdimensional travel is developed. Mm-hmm. And so people just start traveling between dimensions and you get to hop into different parallel universes of Earth. Whoa. And so you can kind of, it's kind of how that is exploited by people who realize that, oh, if this is the same, I can go dig for gold in this specific area where we know gold was, but humans don't exist in this parallel Earth, so I can go there. It's really cool. I really liked it. And there's about five or six novels in that. I only got through two, but I'm, cool. I'll probably go back someday. And uh, Pratchett was really positive though about his diagnosis and uh kind of was like fans you can stay away from this one unless you are a very high-end expert in brain chemistry in which case he was like yeah you can talk to me about this discussing his diagnosis at the both literature festival in the early in early 2008 pratchett revealed that by that point it was too difficult for him to write dedications when signing books and in his later years he wrote by dictating to his assistant rob wilkins or by using speech recognition software He donated a million U.S. dollars, which was at the time uh, 494,000 pounds, to the Alzheimer's Research Trust. And he worked with the BBC to make a two-part documentary series about his illness called Terry Pratchett Living with Alzheimer's. He also appeared on various shows talking about his condition and was subject to a bunch of interviews about that as well. In 2008, news reports indicated that Terry Pratchett had an experience which he described as, it is just possible that once you have got past all the gods that we have created with big beards and many human traits, just beyond all that, on the other side of physics, there just may be the ordered structure from which everything flows. He also added, I don't actually believe in anyone who could have put that in my head. (laughs) Which is an interesting kind of shift in his dogma uh, towards the end of his life. He also was knighted in 2009. He received the accolade at Buckingham Palace and afterwards said, you can't ask a fantasy writer not to want a knighthood. You know, for two pins, I'd get myself a horse and a sword. And in fact, in late 2009, he made himself a sword with help from his friends. Uh, He dug out the iron ore from a field about 10 miles from his house, and they lugged 80 kilos of iron ore, used clay from his garden and straw to make a kiln, lit the kiln with wildfire. It was pretty amazing. His friend, Colin Smith, uh, who was also his agent, donated some pieces of meteoric iron to add to it. Uh, So Thunderbolt iron has a special place in magic, and we put that in the smelt. And I remember when we sawed the iron apart, it looked like silver. Everything about it I touched, handled, and so forth. And everything was as it should have been, it seemed to me. That's what he had to say about that process. That's amazing. Forging of the fucking sword. Meteoric iron is a little bit more difficult to work with. 
like I, I follow this one blacksmith on Instagram and YouTube and he got sent a legit meteor and this guy was like, please make something out of this. This is a really expensive meteorite, but I'm sending it to you. But it was so, there were so many different kinds of metal in it that he could not get it to solidify properly. So he kept folding it and folding it and it just wouldn't take. And he was like, I can't, I can't mm. make anything out of this because the properties don't work. Interesting. It's too diverse of metals. I guess if you're just using little pieces of it in the sword, it's probably easier, but... Yeah, probably de definitely easier, but yeah. Meteorites don't actually make the best um, <laughs> forge things. Sad to learn about that the space swords are a bad idea. I mean, if you had a meteor or an asteroid that had like a more stable set of things, like it was only one or two metals, probably easier than like five or six different metals inside of it. Probably, yeah. Um, Anywho. <laughs> I mean, the next part's a bit of a bummer because in 2009, Pratchett stated in an article that he wanted to die by assisted suicide, although he didn't like that term, before his disease progressed to a critical point. Uh, he later said he felt, quote, it should be possible for someone stricken with a serious and ultimately fatal illness to choose to die peacefully with medical help rather than suffer. And he um, was part of a documentary series that was put together about... Um, wanting to die with dignity and choosing assisted suicide and those kind of things. In 2013, he was named Humanist of the Year by the British Humanist Association, which is now known as Humanists UK. And in September 2012, Pratchett stated, quote, I have to tell you that I thought I'd be a lot worse than this by now. And so did my specialist. The cognitive part of his mind was untouched and his symptoms were mostly physical, which is a major bummer for somebody who wants to type and write and those kind of things. Um, I want to take a quick detour to talk about Terry Pratchett's style because uh, I've seen quite a few pictures of the man and he just looks like a sort of jolly grandpa figure. He's got a white beard and a big smile most of the time. There's some great pictures of him chugging Guinness right after he got an honorary uh, degree from a college in Dublin. He was well known for his penchant for wearing large black fedora hats. Uh, yes, a man after my own heart. Yeah, he uh, liked to dress like an urban cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd also like to mention here kind of how much he drew on other people's styles and influences in his work, which makes sense for somebody who's a satirist and a humorist, um, making fun of existing stuff in a new way is really important there. But he imported numerous characters from classic literature, popular culture, ancient history. Uh, he was a big crime novel fan, which shows up in his Discworld books. You get the Ankhmore Pork City Watch series, which is very much like a police procedural or a detective e feeling to it as well. And he makes fun of Holmes in that. Uh, I love the watch. Yeah, they're the watch is my so favorite. They're so funny. Yeah, I own every single one of the watch books. because I, I think most of what I've read is the watch just because you were like, this is the best. Read all of this. <laughs> that and the witches I love. I hate the wizard series and I'm very sorry to tell you all this. I have never, yeah, never read it because you told me not to. <laughs> yes. Also, if you ever want to, you can hit us up on our uh, email, glitterinthegold at gmail.com if you want my flow chart of how to read uh, the Discworld books. 41 books is daunting but not impossible. And you can kind of start wherever you want, but I have a suggested reading order for people. So did you make that when we did the high school, our senior year? Yes. We, for our English class senior year, we got to talk about 
kind of whatever book we wanted. It was AP English and we were all just done. It's so done. I did Terry Pratchett and I wish I could dig up my notes for that. I think it was on a very old dead computer though. Like, I think I still have the handout that you gave us. I think it's with some of my, cause I kept a bunch of high school papers of things yeah. that I like really liked. And I mm. think it's in there, but that's in my parents' <laughs> place and sisters. Oh, that would be so. amazing though, if that ever turns up. I know, right? I'll keep my eyes out for it. Yeah. <laughs> I've refined it since he added a bunch of novels since I graduated high school. Um, right. Yeah. He also uh, was, Pratchett was an only child, as I mentioned previously, and his characters are often uh, only children as well, which he explained as, quote, in fiction, only children are the interesting ones, which I find brutal as an older child of two. Hey, as an only child, I'm going to take it because I get so much flack. <laughs> Although early in his career, he wrote in sci-fi and horror genres, Pratchett pretty much exclusively focused on fantasy for a significant portion of his writing career and said, quote, it is easier to bend the universe around a story. He didn't really like the term magical realism, which he thought of as a polite way of saying you write fantasy, but like in a fancy higher art way. And I think of it as like people who say they read graphic novels, but not comics. You're like, this is a very fine distinction. And it's kind of just pretension at a certain point. He expressed annoyance that fantasy is unregarded as a literary form and argued that it's the oldest form of fiction. And he really liked combining fantasy and sci-fi, which you see in Discworld as well. A lot of the magic in Discworld is based on chaos theory or quantum mechanics. It'll mention some really funny details on that, which I found really entertaining as somebody who loves science and fantasy. He had a story published in a collection of works that was called After the King, Stories in Honor of J.R.R. Tolkien, which was published in 1992. Uh, this was a story called Troll Bridge, which featured his character, Cohen the Barbarian, <laughs> who's a very old man who survived by being very brutal and now is just like scrawny and ripped and tired and his back hurts and he's like a killing machine. But yeah, he collaborated with a ton of people throughout his career, and I kind of want to make a pie chart of how much Discworld dominated his output, but there were short stories and essays in his canon of works, too. There have been published uh, short fiction that he wrote and some just, like, reflections on writing and life and um, computers and technology. He had a lot of things to say. Terry Pratchett died in his home on the morning of the 12th of March, 2005, from Alzheimer's. The Telegraph reported an unidentified source as saying that despite his previous discussion of assisted suicide, his death had been natural. He had a humanist funeral service. And the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, was published in August 2015, five months after his death. And I did cry reading it. After his death, a few things have emerged in the technology space around him. Um, users of Reddit organized a tribute by which an HTTP header X clacks overhead colon GNU Terry Pratchett was added to websites responses, which is a reference to the Discworld novel Going Postal, in which there's a clacks system, which is the equivalent of the telegraph. Uh, and they are programmed to repeat the name of its creator's deceased son. The sentiment in the novel is that no one is ever forgotten as long as their name is still spoken. 
And so people will kind of just throw GNU Terry Pratchett into code sometimes, kind of hide it. It's my tag on my Tumblr for anything that is Discworld related or Terry Pratchett related. A June 2015 web server survey reported that approximately 84,000 websites had been configured with this GNU Terry Pratchett header. Just kind of a sweet tribute to the guy. It's one way to be immortal. Exactly. Man is not dead so long as his name is still spoken. I am actually not the first person to draw parallels between Pratchett and Tolkien. Wild. Didn't think so, but you know. I, you know, yeah. I feel like I've brought it up so much in this, mostly when you're talking about dwarves, which I will discuss as well. Yay. But he, Pratchett did swipe at J.R.R. Tolkien in some of his speeches on fantasy writing. Uh, after he'd received the Carnegie Medal for Children's Literature in 2002, Pratchett contrasted the heroic warfare of the Lord of the Rings trilogy with his own ideas of peace and justice and said, quote, far more beguiling to me than the idea that evil can be destroyed by throwing a piece of expensive costume jewelry into a volcano is the possibility that peace between nations can be maintained by careful diplomacy. That shows up in quite a few of his books, the concept of war and peace and negotiation and learning to understand each other as people. Yeah. I see some criticism of his works that talked about how Everything in Terry Pratchett books reinforces the idea that everyone is human. And he went into, he went to a great deal of trouble to keep on pushing this. In his last, one of his last books, Snuff, he in basically introduces a whole new fantasy race uh, called Goblins. And I mean, they're not new fantasy race, but it's new to Discworld. And they are human and he was it feels like he's screaming in all of these books that everyone is human and deserving of respect no matter what they look like no matter what their culture is you can take the time to understand these people and negotiate and create a deeper connection and response to each other like with just time and patience and compassion which is really beautiful to see. And even when some, there's some debate in Terry Pratchett's books about, you know, the importance of maintaining a culture when it is harming another. And that's, I don't know, I think teased out in a relatively complicated way that I think is kind of satisfying where it's like, there's no easy answers for this, but there are solutions that we have not considered. Anyway, to talk about him in relation to Tolkien, which is the purpose of this podcast. I went digging for articles that have been written doing this already because as I said, I'm totally not the first person to see this and found a article that was published in a journal of J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, and Mythopoeic Literature. Uh, this is called Toying with Fantasy, the Postmodern Playground of Terry Pratchett's Discworld Novels. And it was written by Daniel Luthi. But it references uh, first a, I believe, either an article or a small book by Tolkien called On Fairy Stories. Mm -hmm. I assume it's an essay he wrote. It was, it was an essay. Um, it was one of the ones that we mentioned it before when he was talking about how he doesn't like the way fairy tales are portrayed in common culture and that they're important. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, two quotes from that article inspired this entire essay where Daniel Luthi talks about the satirization of Tolkien by Terry Pratchett um, and why it is more successful than other satires out there. 
which have fucking hilarious titles, as I will get to in a moment. But first, the two quotes. The first one uh, from On Fairy Stories is, quote, there is one proviso. If there is any satire present in the tale, one thing must not be made fun of, the magic itself. That must, in the story, be taken seriously, neither laughed at nor explained away. The other quote is, children are capable, of course, of literary belief, where the storymaker's art is good enough to produce it. That state of mind has been called willing suspension of disbelief, but this does not seem to me a good description of what happens. What really happens is that the storymaker proves a successful sub-creator. He makes a secondary world, which your mind can enter. Inside it, what he relates is true. It accords with the laws of that world. You therefore believe it while you are, as it were, inside. The moment disbelief arises, the spell is broken. The magic, or rather art, has failed. You are then out in the primary world again, looking at the little abortive secondary world from outside. Yeah, and that was, that was part of his, Tolkien's view um, with language. And also, I think we mentioned this a little bit in the architecture, how that the, the architecture is part of what helps you create this imaginary world as a primary world. And it's not just a, a fake thing. It's this reality that you can live in. Yeah, it's uh, making a world so believable that you can enter it comfortably and escape the, the primary world to the Precisely. secondary world. Yeah. And satire struggles with this in Luthi's description of it. He talks about a couple of books that are made as direct satires of really popular fantasy works like Lord of the Rings, Narnia, and Harry Potter. They have hilarious titles. There is Board of the Rings, uh, The Chronicles of Blarnia, and Barry Trotter uh, are the three titles of books that were written in direct response to these uh, larger, much pop more popular um, fantasy works. I have heard of none of them. <laughs> I have not heard of the one for the Board of the Rings. I have heard of the other two. You've heard of Chronicles of Blarnia? I have heard of Chronicles of Blarnia way, way, way back when. I don't even remember. I've never read it, but I've heard of it. I mean, to me, these, I, having not read any of these books and with zero interest in doing so, uh, I, they sound to me like a way of making some cheap fun out of the drama that is in these or the names, because uh, there's some pretty silly names in all of these works, I'm sure. And I think that there's some very basic laughs to be poked at that. Um, I don't know if it necessarily needed to be an entire book, but whatever. I've read, I've read very specific satire like this before. The only version of Pride and Prejudice I've gotten through is Pride and Prejudice and Zombies <laughs> because I did need it to include zombies and ninjas for it to hold my interest. And that felt like a direct reference to the text. And I've written one of these before. I wrote a parody of House of Leaves just for fun. Um, and so I sent you a porn parody of uh, Fanny Hill that was called Frodo Hill. Yes, you did. And it was atrocious. I couldn't I mean, read it. It was like it was the, the, the intro was so well done because yes. it was such a good satirization of the exact words in West Farthing. But, oh, I don't know why I opened it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not that sorry because I did need you to see that that existed, but I'm sorry you read it with your human eyes. Because you did not read it. <laughs> no, I know better. So I know better than to read something. I trusted you. Oh, don't trust me with that. <laughs> I should have put it like, don't actually read this. 
So it was actually kind of worth my time just saying <laughs> the references in it were priceless. There's that. And that there's some value in that. I think some people read these satires just so they can see their references and like feel like they're laughing along with somebody about these moments or these potentials or something like that. But there is potential for satire and humor to go much deeper. And Terry Pratchett, in my opinion, and in Lucy's opinion, really succeeds in this because of how he interacts with these rules that Tolkien has built in his on fairy stories, where you have that secondary world that you can, people can sink into, but you also never make fun of the magic itself. Uh, Terry Pratchett breaks both of those rules pretty hard, but he does it in a way that is pretty successful and inclusive, I think, um, and complicates a lot of stuff that, in my opinion, Tolkien didn't have any interest in complicating. First, to start off with uh, humor in fantasy can pose a pretty major problem uh, because one of the core concepts is absurdity, meaning, quote, that some things or event that we perceive or think about violates our normal mental patterns and normal expectations, end quote. So it just gets a little too complicated when you have fantasy and humor, which both require you to change the way that you're thinking about something normal. Uh, Luthi argues that humor must be applied in moderate amounts. A good example is the friendly rivalry between Legolas and Gimli in Lord of the Rings, which not only underlines their differing characters, but furthermore predates their eventual friendship or relationship, if you go with what Zoe and I think. Parody, however, ignores these limitations. Since it is fiction and metafiction at the same time, it breaks immersion and deliberately shows the artificiality of a secondary world. And this shows up in Terry Pratchett uh, pretty blatantly from the very beginning when he uses footnotes. Footnotes show up throughout the Discworld novels and they'll bring up things that are relevant to our real primary worlds. And those just pop up in the secondary world here at the very bottom of the page. And they're really funny. Um, they're a great commentary on the characters. They're kind of a sneaky aside. It feels like the author is inviting you to laugh with him at his characters. You're part of an inside joke. Yeah, even as he takes them very seriously. So he's already kind of stepping into satirizing his own work in this even though he's also basing a lot of it on tropes that Tolkien established and popularized with the Lord of the Rings and Middle-earth books. Parodies like Lord of the Rings and Barry Trotter lack invention in their stuff, according to Luthi. They rehash the plots and characters of their source text to achieve a maximum effective recognition, but the purpose is more like you recognize it and laugh at it because it's absurd, but it's not really telling you anything about the secondary world that's being built in this book. It's not telling you about your own world or your own experiences. It's kind of all just very focused on a different text and making fun of that. And it's not particularly generative. Like you're not building anything new with that. So he, Pratchett himself took a more humorous outlook on fantasy at the very beginning with Discworld. He says, quote, Discworld started as an antidote to bad fantasy because there was a big explosion of fantasy in the late 70s. An awful lot of it was highly derivative and people weren't bringing new things to it. Humor, in spite of its danger for disbelief, was a method to emphasize stagnation and stereotypical features of the novels following in the wake of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The Discworld, however, seems to suffer from the same problems as fantasy parodies, per se. The reader's suspension of disbelief is repeatedly broken by blatant allusions to source texts, uh, metafictional commentaries or puns and other plays on words. But 
the freedom to interrupt and ridicule a story was Pratchett's intention, and it liberated his fiction from the constraints of the works he mocked. It also held the danger of putting the Discworld into the genre parody, whose appeal largely lay in dependence on source texts, which were highly popular. According to a source that Luthi cites, parody is a particularly double-edged form of humor. It is not a matter of simply satirizing the target. In fact, the most successful parody is hardly satire at all. For to parody a form or an institution effectively, one has to understand it to the point of affection. Mm. And you see that in these books where Pratchett clearly loves fantasy. And he actually based a lot of his work on some of the same source texts that Tolkien used in terms of wanting to build a British folklore and um, build these stories based on myths that already existed in Britain. I'm going to move to some examples of kind of what he had here. I mean, we have a lot of fairy tale motifs that Pratchett pulled in, such as witches, trolls, and elves, and they're really good for parody because they're so recognizable. Interestingly enough, his version of elves is not based on Tolkien in really any way that I could sense. They are based more on the concept of fae and fairies in British and Irish folklore uh, with a great deal of aggression. They're really dangerous beings. They are able to control people's minds and perceptions of them. They have glamour. Um, They will kill people just for entertainment. They don't see anyone else as human. They are hunters and they live in a parallel world that interacts loosely with ours. They love music. They will steal musicians. Um, They'll torture people just to see what happens. Uh, Pratchett describes them a little bit like cats where they kind of just are vicious out of curiosity. And they're probably the least human of his races. And even they change over the course of the books slowly and painfully, but they do change. And they're an interesting example of Pratchett basically just ignoring Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's established race for that. Tolkien spent so much time on elves. I have heard a lot about elvish language and uh, architecture and fashion and stuff in these. And Terry Pratchett just did not care at all. <laughs> it seems like Terry Pratchett actually kept more quote unquote canon to the original Celtic myth mythologies because the Picts, the Fae in Irish lore are pretty scary. Like yeah. they, you do not want to mess with them um, mm-hmm. because they will take, they will take you away from your land and your world and basically enslave you. Like the amount of stories I've read of like, we heard the music and we went under the hill and we never came out and they, you know, you got taken by the fairies. Yeah. That's more what uh, Pratchett based his elves on. Yeah. But in contrast, you get um, uh, some very specific moments that are just directly Tolkien, uh, which is kind of fun. Some of it's a little broader, like uh, Pratchett spends a great deal of the first, like the initial Discworld novels focusing on quest narratives, where you go to a place and do a thing. Uh, This is partially why I don't really like the wizard books, because a lot of them are based around you got to go to a place and do a thing. And that is not hugely of interest to me. He did start moving away from that pretty rapidly in Discworld and started moving to character narratives. Is this why you've never read Lord of the Rings? I don't know. Because you don't like questing? Yeah, it seems a little forced to me. Ah, okay. I never knew that about you. Yeah. Your your likes. 
It makes okay. it hard for me to plan D and D sessions too, because I'm like, I don't like it when you have to go somewhere and do something. I do want everyone to just talk to each other and develop some diplomacy or something. I think that's interesting. A lot of people would disagree. Said with like me. a pratchet. <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny uh, talking with people whose origins of ideas are very much based in high fantasy like Tolkien and mine is probably what I would call low fantasy of Pratchett. Some of the races that Pratchett does pull in ideas from Tolkien on are trolls and dwarves uh, and a little bit wizards. Dwarves are the strongest satire of Tolkien in my opinion and I'll talk about them in a little bit but to go back to trolls they're super interesting because they are rock-based life forms. They are complicated more and more over time in Pratchett books. And that's kind of the joy of reading more and more Terry Pratchett is you start to see different facets of particular races or people uh, that crop up again and again in his books as he sort of realized that he could make them more complicated over time. Um, this is from Men at Arms. Trolls evolved in high, rocky, and above all, in cold places. Their silicon brains were used to operating at low temperatures. But down on the muggy plains, the heat buildup slowed them down and made them dull. It wasn't that only stupid trolls came down to the city. Trolls who decided to come down to the city were often quite smart, but they became stupid. So this one, it's kind of pulling from computers a bit, where you have the idea of silicone. Silicone, yeah. Conducting electricity, and that is the basis of the brains for trolls. And he describes them as just huge, craggy creatures, which I believe is in Tolkien as well. Yeah. Um, and in Tolkien, they turn to stone when the sun hits them, whereas in Terry Pratchett, they're stone the entire time, and they just get more and more stupid if they are warm. So if they are in sunlight, they will be less smart than if they are in a dark cave underground, for example. Or in this book, uh, one character goes to a pork futures warehouse, which is really, really cold because it's holding time-traveling pork. Highly oh recommend reading these books. <laughs> um, another description from, of trolls and kind of their, their scientific basis, I guess, is from Thud. Thud! Um, <laughs> the best. That's my favorite. So this is a conversation between two characters. And one says, you are aware of the concept of metamorphical rock. And the other says, you mean the way trolls look like certain types of rock? And the first character says, indeed, schist, mica, shale, and so on. No one knows why this is, and they have expended thousands of words on saying so. Oh, the hell with it, as you would say. You deserve a glimpse. Protect your eyes. I am diamond. And then there's a joke about him having to hide out from jewelers. Uh, but you can get trolls that are many different types of rock. And they have names like Brick and Detritus and Mr. Chrysoprase. They are all geology names, which is kind of a fun little theme that Pratchett has going. And they are at odds with dwarves. Unlike in Tolkien's books, it is not the elves and dwarves that are at war. It is trolls and dwarves. Trolls and dwarves because trolls are big rock people and dwarves destroy rock to determine what's inside of it. <laughs> they have had a complicated history, which is uh, discussed more in depth in Thud, which is really awesome. And there's actually a game based on a game that's described in Thud that exists in real life. It's just called Thud, but it was made... Uh, 
from this book. And I kind of want to play it at some point. It seems really cool. I'd play it with you. Yes, it is dwarfs versus trolls. And you play it out on a little mini battlefield and stuff. It's pretty cool. To talk about wizards really quickly, wizards in Tolkien are a different race. And they are wise and they came from across the, across the ocean and they are here with a very specific purpose. Wizards in Terry Pratchett are people who have an aptitude for magic and can learn it in a university setting. Wizard is not the only way you can go. They are only men. They tend to have really big beards and they get really fat because they love eating. Um, and basically are just kind of hedonists at a certain point. They're not allowed to have sex. They probably do anyway. There's a lot of jokes about that. They have wizard staffs. There is a folk song called A Wizard Staff Has a Knob on the End that's like a dirty folk song that's referenced a lot. (laughs) And the other option for anyone who has magical aptitude is being a witch, which is more localized and um, is focused more on small communities and it's kind of like being the smartest person in your backwater village but you still have magical powers you have the ability to do some magic it's mostly based around psychology uh and exploiting the natural world around you to benefit it is it gender specific it is if a wizard is only a man is a witch only a woman or can a witch be woman or man because it's generalized Uh, that changes over the course of the books. Initially, this is a very strict binary. The book Equal Rights, which came out pretty early, is a story about a a wizard who wanted to pass his staff on to the seventh son of a seventh son, which would be a sorcerer. And they have an incredible amount of power. And he passes his staff on without checking the gender of the baby that he gives it to. And that is a female sorcerer named Escarina. And she shows up a couple of times in Pratchett's books. Um, The Equal Rights is all about her. And then later books, she pops up every now and then. So she is a wizard who is female. And then in Shepherd's Crown, you get a boy who wants to be a witch. So (laughs) Pratchett started complicating his own rules slowly. It's fluid. But yeah. (laughs) And there is also a direct reference to Tolkien at one point. It's the only one that I caught There are probably others, uh, but it is in Witches Abroad, and they are traveling down a river, these three witches, Nanny, Magrat, and Granny. And uh, this little scene is a direct reference to, I believe, The Hobbit. Quote, above the noise of the river and the occasional drip of water from the ceiling, they could all hear, now, the steady slosh slosh of another craft heading towards them. Someone's following us, hissed Magrat. Two pale glows appeared at the edge of the lamplight. Eventually, they turned out to be the eyes of a small gray creature, vaguely frog-like, paddling toward them on a log. It reached the boat. Long, clammy fingers grabbed outside, and a lugubrious face rose level with Nanny Ogg's. Hello, it said. It's my birthday. All three... All three of them stared at it for a while. Then Granny Weatherwax picked up an oar and hit it very firmly over the head. There was a splash and distant cursing. Horrible little bugger, said Granny as they rode on. Looked like a troublemaker to me. Yeah, said Nanny Og. It's the slimy ones you have to watch out for. I wonder what he wanted, said Magrat. So I would say that's probably more of a combination reference to The Hobbit and to um, The Fellowship of the Ring when they are leaving Lothlorien and going down the River Anduin and they are being followed by Gollum who is going down the River Anduin on a log. And at one point... 
one of the hobbits looks back and just sees these like two little orbs on the log and one like hand paddling as he paddles on the river. So it's probably that's that more than just the hobbit. Okay, that's fair. But, you know, that is a very clear reference. I got it the first time I read it, and I've never even read these books. I've just seen the movies, and I was like, oh, obvious that's, there. That's, that's so awesome. <laughs> They're just like, we're going we're gonna to not take pity on this creature. We're actually going to put that entire idea, what saved Middle Earth, down the drain and just hit this thing with an oar. Like, fuck pity. <laughs> no one needs that. <laughs> that's witches for you, uh, which is a delight. There's also a pretty interesting uh, example of a character who is destined to be king. Um, And the concept of destiny is brought up fairly often in this. And it's complicated how it actually manifests. But there's a character who uh, gets a special sword and has a special birthmark and was orphaned as a child and raised by dwarves. And then the dwarves are like, you are actually human. You should probably go and live with some humans and see what that's all about. And it's implied that he is the rightful king of the city Ankhmore Pork. And he just refuses to do it. He will not take that role on. He leaves it in charge of the patrician uh, and works as a police officer instead. Um, And is a very upright young man and very popular with everybody and great at remembering people's names. He has kind of like a natural charisma to him that is also implied to be you know, his birthright, kingly kingly birthright shining through, and he just refuses to accept that. So this is Aragorn. If Aragorn had refused to become a king and had just stayed a ranger and wandered around wearing muggy, dirty bits of clothing and watching out for hobbits. Exactly. There are no hobbits in Pratchett. That is one race that does not show up, unfortunately. But to talk about what I really wanted to talk about with all this, dwarves. My favorites, they get the most, I find it to be the most interesting transformations uh, and depth in these stories over time. Um, There's a a whole bunch of books about the City Watch, and that is mostly where they show up. Um, They are also present in other parts of Discworld. They show up in the witches' uh, stories as broom fixers. Like, they're really good at fixing brooms for some reason. (laughs) Uh, dwarf bread is a really common joke that shows up a lot where it's uh, incredibly good rations because you think about eating dwarf bread and then you're suddenly not hungry anymore. It is weaponized in a lot of situations. You can, they have like drop scones that can crush a skull and you fight people with baguettes and stuff because the dwarf bread is so tough. Um, And these are just like weird little details. So, okay, this probably has nothing to do with it at all, but the word for wand in French is baguette. <laughs> so when I was reading Harry Potter in French, Harry, I live is a baguette. <laughs> um, so now my brain is just picturing like baguettes with dwarves being used like wands. Incredible. Yeah, kind of the, the initial descriptions of dwarves are very much in keeping with Tolkien's image of them. Um, there is... Very quickly, a dwarf introduced, and this is a bit of a spoiler for it, but it doesn't really matter. A dwarf is introduced as Cheery Little Bottom in the book Feet of Clay. He is, I mean, Cheery Little Bottom is a pretty funny name, and it is uh, mocked a bit in that book. And he starts to interact with people more and more. He's come from outside the city, uh, is visiting, and uh, gets a job as a police officer. 
and meets a woman named Angua who's on the force um, and she is a werewolf. And in talking with her, he reveals that uh, he is in fact female and wants to change his name and start going by she pronouns and uh, which don't exist in Dorvish in Terry Pratchett's world. There is only one pronoun and it is he. Hmm. And um, she wants to start dressing differently as well and kind of wants to like sneak out there that she is female. And in The Fifth Elephant, this is described a bit more. Corporal Cheery Littlebottom pronounced her name Sherry. She was a she and therefore a rare bloom in Ankhmore pork. It wasn't that dwarves weren't interested in sex. They saw the vital need for fresh dwarves to leave their goods to and continue the mining work after they had gone. It was simply that they also saw no point in distinguishing between the sexes anywhere but in private. There was no such thing as a dwarvish female pronoun, or, once the children were on solids, any such thing as women's work. Then Cheery Littlebottom had arrived in Ankhmore Pork, and had seen that there were men out there who did not wear chainmail or leather underwear, but did wear interesting colors and exciting makeup, and these men were called women. And in that little bullet head, the thought had arisen, why not me? Now she was being denounced in cellars and dwarf bars across the city as the first dwarf in Ankhmore Pork to wear a skirt. It was a hard-wearing brown leather and as objectively erotic as a piece of wood, but as some of the older dwarves would point out, somewhere under there were his knees. Worse, they were now finding that among their sons were some, they choked on the word, daughters. Cheery was only the frothy bit at the tip of the wave. Some younger dwarves were shyly wearing eyeshadow and declaring that, as a matter of fact, they didn't like beer. A current was running through dwarf society. Cheery had retained her beard and round iron helmet, of course. It was one thing to declare that you were female, but quite unthinkable to declare that you weren't a dwarf. So this continues to pop up throughout the series as dwarves navigate um, discovering that their dwarves that they have grown up with are in fact female and want to show that, which is an interesting trans narrative uh, that I'm sure has been discussed in essays and the points there are made are much smarter than ones I could make. What year was that book written? Uh, This is from the fifth elephant and was published in 2000, but Cheery Little Bottom shows up in Feet of Clay, which was published a couple of years earlier. I'm just, I was just curious if that had any, because he was writing from the early 80s onward, if that had any relevancy with when Pride started in Greenwich Village. Possibly. But, but the timeline doesn't match up, but I was just curious. Not totally, but I mean, he, he was a pretty aware person. Like, he's not a queer author at all and gay characters do not show up very often in his works this is kind of in contrast to his contemporary and fellow writer neil gaiman who included a lot of uh explicitly queer and trans characters in his work very early on so it's like terry project could have done better with this but he was interested in telling this kind of story and it comes from a place of Tolkien where female dwarves were not really a thing. They were a secret. They were hidden. They were rare. And in Tolkien explicitly, they talked about that kind of thing. And Pratchett's response to that was, no, they're not rare. They didn't realize there was another option. They are a totally different race who has different values and gender expression. And when they get the chance to use a different gender presentation, some of them are going to be really curious about that and really excited about it. 
Um, and there is going to be a lot of pushback. And throughout this book, you get to see how Cheery Little Bottom is treated by fellow dwarves and her fellow police officers. Uh, and her fellow police officers have more respect for her because she's proven herself as a very good alchemist. And then the dwarves, it kind of varies the reaction to that. Some of it's very strongly against her and you get to learn some dwarvish slurs, which is great. <laughs> um, but they do touch on some of the other dwarvish language, which was interesting because Pratchett normally doesn't spend a lot of time on language. He's not Again, he's very different from Tolkien and what he's kind of trying to write here. And his idea of secondary world that you can sink into is not as fleshed out with the architecture and the language as Tolkien's. But even so, he has some stuff to say about how to speak Dwarvish. This is a, a lesson that uh, Cheery is giving to her commander, Captain uh, Sir Samuel Vimes of the City Watch. Sam! Yeah, they have to go uh, on a diplomatic mission to speak with the dwarves about the crowning of the Low King. Um, I remember that. Yes. I also remember when Sam went on a diplomatic mission to talk to the werewolves, and that didn't end very well. No, that is also in this book and is quite exciting. There's a lot of diplomacy in that book. Yeah. Well, failed diplomacy in some sense. Attempted diplomacy. <laughs> Attempts. There's more diplomacy in Thud, honestly. Yeah. Um, which is also very interesting. They talk about, uh, they have different Dorvish words that show up and you get the sense of like syntax and connection in these words, which is kind of cool. So Cheery Littlebottom talks about the aforementioned uh, rightful king of Ankhmore Pork, who is their captain in this, is uh, he is a dwarf. He was adopted by dwarves. He's performed the Wagrad. He observes the Jakarga insofar as that's possible in a city. He's a dwarf. And then Chiri goes on to say, most of the dwarves here are, well, I suppose you'd call them liberal, sir. They're mainly from the mountains behind, behind Copperhead, you know? They get along with humans. Some of them even acknowledge that they've got daughters, sir. But some of the more old-fashioned, uber-walled dwarves haven't got out so much. They still act as if Bahrain bloodaxe were still alive. That's why we call them Drudakach. Vimes had a go, but he knew that to really speak dwarvish, you needed a lifetime study and, if at all possible, a serious throat infection. Above ground, they negatively, he faltered, they do not get out in the fresh air enough, Cheery supplied. <laughs> so you have an example there of someone, an outsider, describing what dwarvish sounds like and also attempting to parse what a word he doesn't know means based on his knowledge of the language already. Well, and just to, just to add really quickly to that, the kind of funny allusion to how Tolkien, they learned, the dwarves learned dwarvish from the crib right? You literally have to, you literally mm -hmm. take an entire lifetime to learn Dwarvish and it's like kept in secret from when you are born to when you die. Mm. Kind of alluded to there. Yes. And the like rightful king of the dwarves and that kind of gets into that Durin's folk. Sort Durin, of yeah, Durin's folk. Yeah. Bahrain Bloodaxe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this is the exchange between Vimes and some dwarves that he does not know, but he is going to try to speak Dwarvish to them based on his knowledge of street dwarvish as a police officer. So a dwarf detached himself from the rest and walked over to the coach. Tagrudsk, he bellowed. Would you like me to take care of this, your grace, said Inigo. I'm the damn ambassador, said Vimes. He stepped down. Good morning, dwarf, indicating miscreant. I am overseer Vimes of the look. Lady Sybil heard Inigo give a little groan. Grz, grzadek yad. Hang on, hang on, I know this one. I am sure you are a dwarf of no convictions. Let us shake our business, dwarf, indicating miscreant. <laughs> so this is uh, 
obviously a, a translation of what Vimes is saying in this moment, but the, uh, the implication that dwarf as a uh, noun has an implication you could be bad <laughs> is very interesting. Uh, that's a whole linguistics thing. And the fact that this is the only dwarvish that he would know how to say clearly, it's very much strictly utilitarian. I'm a cop and I am trying to get you to tell me what's going on or stop or come with me. <laughs> It reminds me of in Star Trek with Klingon, where they have suffixes uh, to represent like speaking language sentient beings and races. And they have the one that is only used for the Klingon people. And then they have the suffix that is used for everybody else. And it literally means enemy. Very binary view on that one. Very binary view, but it kind of <laughs> reminds me of that. <laughs> Yeah, so the way that Pratchett explores language is much more utilitarian. He did not build a language and then build a society around that. And he also is much more interested in dwarves and dwarf culture and um, dwarf politics, especially, which is pretty cool. There are some ways that Pratchett leans into even weirder depictions of dwarves. There's uh, a point in Men at Arms where a dwarf officer and a troll officer are wandering some tunnels underground and the dwarf officer teaches the troll officer the traditional dwarvish song gold 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 golds which you just sing in the mines there's also a point in this book i couldn't find the direct quote where uh people say that dwarves love gold like that is the one thing they know about dwarves and the dwarf says no we don't love gold we just say that to get it into bed so he's kind of taking some very strong dwarf stereotypes there and mocking them uh, in some ways. There's also references to the hi-ho song that all dwarves know. Uh, yes, of course, you must. <laughs> kind of the coolest concept that I thought was introduced was in Thud, uh, which is my favorite, as you know. And it is a uh, mind sign, which I brought up in one episode where we talked about sign language and yes. uh, dwarf sign language. But the way that Pratchett sets it up um, in Thud, it is described this way. You have to understand about dwarf minds, sir. It's a kind of emotional hothouse was how Vimes understood it. Although no dwarf would ever describe it that way. Humans would have gone insane living like that, cramped together, no real privacy, no real silence, seeing the same faces every day for years on end. And since there were a lot of pointy weapons around, it'd only be a matter of time before the ceilings dripped blood. Dwarves didn't go mad. They stayed thoughtful and somber and keen on their job, but they scrawled mind sign. It was like an unofficial ballot, voting by graffiti, showing your views on what was going on. In the confines of a mine, any problem was everyone's problem. Stress leapt from dwarf to dwarf like lightning. The signs grounded it. They were an outlet, a release, a way of showing you what you felt without challenging anyone because of all the pointy weapons. They go into a couple of the different mine signs and they are all based around different kinds and qualities of darkness as well, which is a major part of Dwarves consistently say that they are not religious in these books. Uh, they're like, dwarf, dwarves are not religious. <laughs> but there are moments like this where they talk about the waiting dark, the following dark, which is a sign that means we await what follows with dread. Another translation might mean, in effect, repent, ye sinners. Um, there's the closing dark, the opening dark, the breathing dark, the calling dark, the speaking dark, the catching dark, the secret dark. Uh, these are all just different 
examples that are given of mind sign. And in fact, one mind sign shows up very strongly in this book uh, and it's, it's pretty interestingly handled. But these are all kind of examples of Ratchet, I think just starting from a basic idea of Tolkien's dwarves and maybe even what we were given with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and just rolling with it and thinking about, no, actually, how would people who live in this situation react? How could they exist as a society? What would be different about the way that they interact with the world than human beings or any other race, really? And that kind of empathy and humanity is just really cool to see and creates some very interesting ideas about culture and society. And then when you start smashing these cultures and societies together, you get something even different as well. Mm. This is commented on by Lucy to go back to that article. Uh, Quote, recognizing these patterns and stories, be they oral or written, enhanced Pratchett's more subtle humor that had been a minor topic in the earlier novels and led the Discworld in a direction away from parody, providing it with a hidden, ever-increasing complexity. The remembrance of the bones of stories is an important point as it highlights what Tolkien termed the cauldron of story. I don't know what the cauldron of story is, but to me, the picture that comes into my mind is all the things that you learn in the world go into stories that you create. So you can absorb a whole bunch of British folklore and you can absorb a whole bunch of Finnish like stories and language and stuff like that. And you can come out with Lord of the Rings. I mean, it wouldn't be the same. It's a melting pot essentially. Yes, exactly. And the melting pot of making a story that is original and creative and yours draws from a bunch of sources. There's nothing new under the sun, but the way that you tell a story is based on your experience of the world, how you reflect that, and all these different sources and inspirations that helped you make it. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. You're welcome. That was so fun. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to me talk about Terry Pratchett and story and dwarves for so dang long. If you want to email us, we are glitterinthegold at gmail.com. We're available through all major podcasting apps. If you could subscribe, uh, like, rate, review, all of that would be awesome. Share us with your friends. Go read some Terry Pratchett books. Yes. They're amazing and definitely helped shape a lot of my philosophy about the world and how to treat other people. And uh, yeah, we will hear, see you next time. You can hear us next time. See you on the Discworld side. <laughs> turtle, turtle, turtle. <laughs>